Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Sterling Goodbyes podcast with me, Karen Rice. This is being recorded remotely due to the COVID-19 restrictions. I'm joined today by Carol Caldwell from Crawley in Sussex, who lost her mother, Irene, originally from Liverpool, to COVID-19 in April this year. Welcome, Carol. Hi, Karen. Thanks for having me. And thanks for sharing your story with us. What was her most lovable quality? Um, she loved her family. She was a real family person. Um, and she was, I mean, I, I, you know, we could all say this about our moms, but she was a really, really kind hearted person. Her heart was always in the right place. What do you miss about her on a daily basis? Talking to her, talking to her. Um, that's free. Just being there. Can you describe, I mean, obviously you say that she moved uh, to be to be close to you um, in Sussex. Can you tell me what happened, how she felt ill? So she lived with us for about, well, for up to about nine months. And then... How was that um, nine months, can I ask? How was that nine months for you? It was amazing. We had two arguments, <laughs> which was uh, quite funny, but... Um, yeah, we had a couple of we had a couple of arguments, but you know, in general, it worked really, really well. She was very, very fond of my husband. She kind of felt it was like because I've got a brother, but he lives in Blackpool, and she looked on on my husband as a, as a second son, really. And um, they they got on brilliantly. He had a he always used to call her the old bat, and that that was you know his name for her, and it stuck. But no, it was it was a really, really lovely time because I felt like. I was able to kind of do the mother and daughter things that perhaps we'd not done in the years, you know, that she was living in Liverpool and I was down here. I mean, I used to go and visit her all the time, but it wasn't quite the same as being there. Um, so I, I, for me and, and for her, we both enjoyed that, that sort of having that company and go and taking her out for lunch and things like that. So do you have a sort of treasured moment from that, from that nine months? Yeah. I do, yes. It was her 80th birthday and I'd, as a surprise for her, I'd booked um, some tickets to go see the Jersey Boys. She's a massive, massive fan. And I didn't tell her. I just went up there and went, I sort of had a video of like me arriving and sort of surprising her and she was, oh. And yeah, I took her to the show, took her to a really, really beautiful hotel where we had dinner and she just said, you know, this is just the best day ever, you know, and, and I'll never forget that. That's lovely. So yeah, very special. I wanted to ask you what your mother Irene was like, both as a, a person and as a mother. Oh, um, well, she was she was quite a strong lady, very strong lady. She was she had a, a very varied life to start with. She was um she was from Liverpool. She worked in the the Empire Theatre, so she met lots of stars and um she used to work in the cabin for a couple of years after that and you know, she was quite friendly with some of the people. Um, so she's got lots of stories to tell, which was amazing. She never boasted about it, but it was something that she was very proud of. Who did she meet? So, yeah. and, um, who did she meet and what? She met the Beatles. She met Stella Black. Billy Fury was actually my, my uncle's, like my mum's brother. She was actually um, my uncle's best friend. They worked on the tugs together. 
and they, they remained best friends for years afterwards. And apparently I used to sit on Billy Fury's knee when he used to come around the house, but I, obviously I was too young to remember, so I, 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 I can't remember that. Can you share, just going back, backtracking a little bit, can you share what she said about Cilla Black and which Beatles she met and any of her reflections on those those people? She wasn't keen on Paul McCartney. She thought he was a bit a little bit, but she said John Lennon and George Harrison were lovely. Ringo Starr was a bit more aloof. So she wasn't, as I say, she wasn't overly keen on Paul McCartney. She used to know his mother is his auntie or something. So and she even she was like, Oh, our oh, Paul's like this, you know, he's leaving to it, sort of thing. Zilla Blackshed was absolutely lovely, really, really, and very modest, you know, wasn't boastful or anything like that. She had a voice and she said she used it, you know, and got where she was. So, but um, Jerry and the Pacemakers, she lived around the corner from Jerry Marsden and she said he was just amazing. She went to school with a couple of footballers that were back in the, the, the you know, the Liverpool team. She loved Liverpool Football Club. They, they were her passion. So, yeah, she was... She was pretty well connected then. Yeah, yeah, she was. And, it, and it's nice to know that that history's there, you know. So those last nine months are obviously very special with your mum in Sussex. So can you describe what happened, how she felt ill? So she fell ill literally nine months after she'd been with us. I, we, it, was, it was December 18, I think it was. And I took her, we were going out for lunch, we were going Christmas shopping. And I was meant to be working that day. And I had a phone call the day before to say, would I swap? So I said, yeah, that's fine. And I would have been out for like nine hours because um, I work at the airport. I, so I swapped my day off and went across the road to go. She wanted to go and draw some money out to go Christmas shopping. And she collapsed on me with a stroke which I knew straight away what was happening. So managed to get her into hospital very quickly. And she, you know, they, they said she had no chance. She was going to die. It was awful. And she fought back and, you know, from having not been able to speak or swallow or anything like that, she came back to, she had a few disabilities when she kind of, you know, resumed normal life, shall we say. She, she recovered from the stroke That's really, amazing. really well. Well, she had four in one go. So that's why they said she wasn't, she wasn't going to make it. Sorry, but four, you know, four strokes in one go. Yeah, yeah. And she was, she was 81 then. Yeah, and I think, she, you know, just so much strength and she wanted to live. You know, she was like, I've got too much to live for. I'm going nowhere. It was that kind of thing. Did she make a full, full recovery or? She made a, she made a recovery to the point where she couldn't walk very well, but she could still, you know, do things and, she could still sort of, we could take her out. We, we bought a van, uh, like a, a travel thing, so we could take her out, you know, in the wheelchair rather than having to walk around. So, yeah, she was, for her, she was in a, in a better place than she could have been. But it upset her that she'd had the strokes. And it was a long way, because for those four, I mean, she was four months in hospital with, with rehab and everything, and I never left. I, I literally went into hospital with her that day, and I never came home for six weeks. I just stayed in the hospital the whole time. And then we brought her back here. We got, got the house converted so that she could come back here. And, and then she decided she wanted somewhere of her own because she wanted that independence. And she said, you know, because she used to have to have carers coming in twice a day. And it was, you know, I, I'd really like to sort of not have this happening in your home all the time. Somebody suggested that, you know, we've got a, this beautiful, like, self-contained flat within, like, a, a sort of lovely, lovely place but they have carers there all the time. So she'd have somebody there all the time. 
which obviously I was going to work and I wasn't here, you know, constantly. So she found that much better and they really looked after her well. They really did. They were lovely because the cares we had here were dreadful. So it was kind of really bad. We had safeguardings and everything. It was awful. So, yeah, um, she then eventually moved out literally just around the corner from me in a really nice place. It gave her the independence that she craved, you know, that she'd always had. And I used to go around there every single day and we cook, like my husband would cook dinner for her. We'd take it round for her when he picked me up from work, take it round there. And I think that's what I miss a lot since, you know, bef- you know, before lockdown, I, I was I was there every day. I'd, I'd do a 12 hour day sometimes. I'd still go around there because I just felt it important. You know, I knew she was she could be on borrowed time from having strokes. So I wanted to make the most of every day I had with her, you know. So and then she leading up to that, she was in in bed one day and she I said to her, are you OK? And she said, oh, I just feel a bit tired. And she was coughing. And then they said, oh, she's got she's got a little bit of asthma there, but nothing to worry about. When was that, Carol? That was three weeks. That was just before lockdown. So it would have been the, towards the end of March. I was okay. still working then. And then we we kind of finished work around like 26th of March. And I got a phone call from the carers to say that she needs to go into hospital because her breathing wasn't very good. So I, I said, right. So I, I went straight down to the hospital, which is down the road, literally from where I was working. I went straight from work and they kept it. And they said, look, we don't want to keep her in too long because, you know, we've got the virus that's just starting to kind of come around. But I wasn't masked up or anything like that. It wasn't really kind of known as much then. And anyway, she was in for two days. They sorted her out. She was sent home. And then she went back in again. And I was allowed to go and see her for an hour. And I said, they said, you know, a breather. They, they tested her twice for coronavirus and they both came back negative. And they, I, they said, oh, you can only stay for an hour because you're on a COVID ward. And I said, well, why is she on a COVID ward? And they said, well, we haven't really got anywhere else to put her. And I said, but she's 82 years old. She's got no COVID and you've got her on a COVID ward. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't. Well, there's nowhere else we can put her. You know, we've had to split the ward and, and you know, the ward is rife. Uh, the, you know, the hospital is rife with, with COVID. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, we've got to make sure you do all the washing of your hands as you go out. And obviously then I panicked for a week because then I had a little bit of a cough afterwards. They tell me I couldn't go back and see her. And I saw her in the bed that day and then she was in there for another 10 days and they tested her and, I, and they said to me, we'll move her. And they moved her while I was there to a different ward. And I went home feeling quite happy, you know, and the next morning I rang in because I rang every morning, every night because they said I couldn't go back in and see her then because then it was just on lockdown. And I rang up the next morning and they'd moved her back to the COVID ward again while I wasn't there. And I was just livid. I was absolutely livid. I can't tell you what I said. And I said, you know, I'm clapping for you guys. I said, and you're doing that to her. And he, they said, well, you know, we're running out of places. And I said, well, but she's not COVID. You've tested her. And then literally the cough got worse, got worse, got worse. I was speaking to her on the phone every day. They would give her the phone to, you know, talk to her every day. And I could hear her getting worse. And I said, look, what are you doing? She's, she's getting worse. We've had to test her again. Of course, they tested her again. She was positive. Oh and I just said, I'm sorry, but I'm blaming you for this. I said, I know you're in a situation where it's unknown. You don't know what you're dealing with. And I know it's hard for you guys. I said, but it did not make sense for somebody that was COVID free at her age. I said, it just seems like you don't care. Like you're killing them off. 
you know it's going to get her and oh well it's just another one less to worry about and that was how my mind was thinking at the time because it was very stressful and, and obviously they were just telling me she was going to die she, and they said we're doing everything we can we're giving and, and towards the end it was kind of like I'd have the phone call with her and all I would hear with her was her trying to gasp for breath all the time and um, they had her on oxygen and then I'd, I spoke to her about three days before and all I said to the guy to all the family you need to you need to call her because I'm not sure she's going to make it because she sounds dreadful and I couldn't just I couldn't just accept it so she managed to talk to everybody but only just and I just said to her mom I'm sorry I can't be there with you um sorry that's fine and um you know obviously we all love you and uh I managed to get I love you back and that was it they rang me the next day and said that she deteriorated and it was a one of the doctors that rang me and he said uh, we want to put her into, into end of care into end of life care and I said what and he said uh, she needs to go into end of life care and I said what does that mean I, I kind of knew what it meant but I was just my head was all over the place and he said well we want to take her off all our medication and put her on a cocktail of drugs you know driver and I said oh you want to kill her then basically euthanasia euthanizer that's what you want to do and he said oh no it's totally the opposite and I said that's not how it feels for me that seems like you've given up on her and he said no we just wanted to die peacefully and not from you know this is a really horrible virus that is not a nice death from he said I'm being brutally honest with you you know he said we want to take her off the drugs and give her something that will help her to pass away peacefully and I said you're still euthanizing you're still euthanizing I'm sorry that's how I you know and he said, well, you can think of it as you want. And then he got a little bit, you know, he said, but um, she's, got a, she's got no DNR in place. He said, that's because she didn't want one. Do not resuscitate. Yeah, she didn't, she didn't want that. She, she said, I, I want to be resuscitated. If something happens, I want to be resuscitated. And she knew all the, the risks. And he said, but we could break her ribs. I said, but she knows that. And that's why she hasn't got one. Well, she needs one. And I said, but she didn't want one. She had that choice before when she had her stroke. I said, and she told the guy then she didn't want one. She wanted that chance, you know. He said, right, okay, well, it's your choice then. And I said, well, yeah, it is, because it's hers. She was able to make that decision for herself. And then he said to me, well, you know, she, she is really, he said, I, he said as, a, as a doctor, I can't watch her. He said, you're not here. I said, no, I'm not. I said, so why can't I come in and be with her? And he said, well, you could do, but I'm telling you now, you're very likely to get the COVID virus because we can't protect you. And he said, um, even with PPE, he said, we are so rife in here with it. He said, I can't guarantee you're not going to get it. And he said, I'd rather you didn't come in. And at that point I was like, so are you trying to hide something from me? You know, because then your mind's working overtime. And I know for a fact that when I was working at the airport at the beginning of the pandemic, my mom was really scared for me. And she said, you know, you're, you're meeting all them people constantly from all over the world and they could be bringing the virus in. And I'm really worried that you're going to get this. So don't do anything to kind of. So I knew for a fact that if she thought there was any risk involved, she would not want me to go in there just to see her. I know she wouldn't. So it kind of made me realize that. I asked the family and they all said exactly the same thing. So they were telling me they didn't want me in any way. 
I said, can I speak to her? Is she able to talk? And he said, not really. He said, but I'll put her on. And he put her on the phone and it was, well, it was just awful. It was awful. It was uh, 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 just constantly. And I just said, take the phone away, please. Told her I loved her. And then that was it. He said, it'll take a few days. She was gone the next day. Gone. That that was it, really. So, How do you feel about the fact that you couldn't be with her, holding her? I'm guilty. Even though it's not your fault? I kind of feel that maybe I should have just stood my ground and said, okay, what you say, I'm coming in. But at the same time, my husband's shielding. He's got health issues and he's had to shield. And I knew for a fact that if there was a high risk, she would not have wanted me to have taken that risk. I know she wouldn't. But it doesn't stop me feeling guilty as to, and I keep feeling, you know, did they end her life prematurely or did they do the right thing? There's so many questions. They said, oh, we had somebody there with her. She passed away with somebody there with her. How do I know that? I don't know that. You know, and then they left her, you know, in the ward for almost three hours dead because they had no room in the mortuary and I still couldn't see her, couldn't have anything of her. Which hospital was that, Carol? East Surrey. So she passed, they telephoned you to let you know that or? They rang me, I knew as soon as I had a call around about half past nine in the morning and they said that um, she'd just passed away and she said she just kind of went to sleep and that was it but I don't know that I wasn't there I didn't see you know I couldn't hold her hand I don't know if anyone was there and and I, and I was just angry that they put somebody that was COVID free on a COVID ward what's what's happened since since your mum passed well I, I had a chat with the medical examiner who rang me about two days later obviously I had to register the death so you have to go through all the rigmarole of that and then the medical examiner rang me because obviously everything was being done remotely. And he said, um, I'm really sorry about your mum passing away. He said, um, we couldn't put her on a ventilator because it was too intrusive at her age with her other health conditions. And he said, we would have struggled to get the tube down, but he said, we wouldn't have got it back out. So he said, we couldn't do that. He said, but actually, he said, what we're finding is that people that are on a ventilator aren't doing as well for some reason we don't know why it's kind of almost like a death sentence when they go onto a ventilator so he was very upfront he was very honest and you know he said look the guys have done their best here and I just said to him I said yeah but you know they stopped her meds and and they didn't carry on treating her and and whilst I understand to a degree why I said I just feel like they were killing her off in a in a in a way you know he said unfortunately it definitely was covid he said that's what we'll be going on the death certificate he said we, we've seen it on the x-rays and he said it's come back in the bloods well i said okay then because I, I was very aware then that covid was just starting to be put on people's death certificates when it wasn't covid so i wanted to be absolutely sure and he said and i've asked for the for the records i said i want to see the, all the records so that just takes time to come through so then it was arranging a funeral and that's just that was just awful because the the guys were absolutely amazing in the best way they could be under the circumstances but 
I couldn't have a that she was she had to be locked and and contained in a in a in a box or whatever in the hospital. So and it wasn't allowed to be opened again. So I couldn't have a lock of her hair. I couldn't have I couldn't put anything in the coffin with her. I couldn't see her in the chapel of rest. I couldn't see her in the funeral directors. It was just COVID-19 that they have to write on the top and, you know, they have to go all, all PPE, PPE equipment on and everything. And I couldn't dress her in anything. She was just, I just feel really, I, I feel robbed, not just of her, but of everything that goes with her death. It just wasn't normal, you know. I didn't see her for three weeks, you know, and then, then when she needed us, they wouldn't let me be there. I had some counselling and she said to me, I don't know what to do with you. She was very honest. I don't know what to do with you. She said, I've never come across anything like this before. Um, you know, like she said, it, it, you know, there's a, there's a car accident or a plane crash or something like that. You know, it's horrible. It's a death. But you get to complete that grieving process. We've not been able to grieve as a family. You know, even when we got to, to the, um, you know, it was all arranged remotely. Instead of having 100 and odd people there, which she would have done, because people want to travel down from up north to sort of, you know, she had five. And even, and that was just my family from here. My brother wasn't allowed to travel at that time, so even he couldn't go to the funeral. So he is now, he's up here, he's really struggling now because... He said, she's not, she's not at a funeral. It's not a funeral. It's not, you know, until we get together as a family. So he's not even accepting we've had to have a funeral. It doesn't feel like a funeral. It doesn't feel real. And, you know, even on the day, me and my two daughters, we had to stay separately so many, you know, two metres apart. And, and then it was like the, the vicar came up to us and he was like two metres apart. It was, we could see her arriving and they stopped for ages because it was such a backlog going through. And then when they brought her up, it was just awful. And they said, nobody can, you know, none of us can carry her in. It's got to be them. And we'll tell you when it's okay to come in. I want to follow my mum in, you know. And we went in there and they sat us as far away as they could away from where she was. And they just, it's just robbed us of everything. It really has. Just couldn't do anything as a family. We couldn't hug each other. We just had to sit there crying in the church individually on our own. And I could hear my daughters behind me grieving, you know. It was awful. And I couldn't comfort them. Couldn't be with them. And even afterwards when we came out, we all had to go separately. And it was it was just horrible. And I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I really wouldn't. Not this. And it's, it's going to be very, very hard to get over. What keeps you awake at night? Guilt. Guilt that maybe I could have done more. I don't know. I was kind of helping to care for her. And as I say, I used to see her every day. And could I have done more to help her? Could I have stopped her having to go into hospital? If she hadn't gone into hospital, she would still be here now. You know, she should never have caught it in hospital. There should have been things in place back then you know they were i mean she died right in the middle of the pandemic at when it was at its peak and it's it shouldn't have happened what's the one thing you wish people understood about all of this 
that it's real, that it is very, very real. And I, I you know, when I see on, 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 you know, the pictures, and I know pictures can be distorted and they can be played around with, and but I've seen it on, on the news reports and they're not going to report it. I, I look at that as, as more fact, I think, what I see on the TV rather than on social media. And I look at it and I, and I think, well, why are you, why are you sitting there in, on the beach just not social distancing? And I heard, you know, they, did, they, had, they interviewed somebody and he said, oh, it's not there now. It's gone. I don't think it's even there. You know, and I thought, no, because you haven't lost anybody to it, so you don't understand. I've seen it. I've heard it. I've, se- I've heard what it does. I've seen what it does. And you guys, you're not taking it seriously. And, and I think that is the general consensus in, in, in this country at the moment. I don't think, as a nation, we've taken it seriously enough. I think we've been in, that, in lockdown for that long now that people are just saying, oh, well, just want to get out. Just want to go to the pub. I had a call on Friday from where my mum lives, or where, where she lived in the complex, and they said, whilst we're still on lockdown, we would like you to come and clear mum's flat for us. You need to wear all the PPE. So I was dreading that, but I knew it had to be done. So I had to go yesterday, and I spent all day there yesterday doing that, and it was the most traumatic thing I think I've ever had to do. I was a mess. I walked in and... Everything was just there, but not her, and really hit me. And I think, whereas I knew she was gone, it still felt, because we've been in lockdown, it felt like she was in lockdown to a degree. And when I got there yesterday and saw all her stuff and opened the wardrobe with all their new clothes that she bought, we bought together, that we still had labels on them. And that was hard. So, yeah, that, that, was, that was awful. And I felt like I was intruding in a way. She wouldn't think of it that way, but I felt like I was intruding because I was having to go through all her stuff and throw things away or keep things or, you know, and it, it wasn't nice. And it was a really, really tough day, really tough day. One nice thing that came out of it, something I came across, and it was um, a four-page love letter from my dad to my mom, written in 1959 when he was in the army. And he's in, you know, it, how much he loved her and how much he was waiting, you know, wait to come, come back and see her. And they were going to make a life together and he wanted to marry her. And there was kisses everywhere and Swalk and Holland and things like that. It was just, and it, it was, it was really sad. And I sobbed like a baby when I was reading it and she wouldn't have minded me reading it, but it's something I can keep. It's something of theirs that I can treasure. And the fact that they loved each other so much and the fact that, I didn't realise it would have survived all these years, but it has. And he had a photograph of wrapped in it of him in his beret, you know, when he was younger and when he was in the army in, in Cyprus. And it was just, it's actually something that I've taken away from, from that, something positive. And I can kind of, but it did bring back about the death of my dad. And that was, that really hit me yesterday, big time. But they're, they're together now, they're reuniting, they're together you know, so they would, for me, it was like, that was the start of their story. They met in Liverpool and then my dad got, he got commissioned because obviously conscription was in then and he got conscripted out to Cyprus. They'd met and they, they wanted to be together and he got conscripted to Cyprus for three years. And he just kept saying, you know, in this letter, I, I don't want to have to do the three years because I'm desperate to see you and I want to be with you. And it was just, it was just love, literally 
how much my it was all my darling my darling my darling all the way through it was just amazing because that's how they used to talk to each other back then and it was it was it was just lovely to read all the way through and you know he said I'm, i'll be home soon i've saved up 50 pounds out of my wages and he said you know i've been saving for all this time and that's enough for us to get married and have a you know put a deposit down on a house sort of thing so wonderful it was just lovely and and it, it is something i would treasure forever you know but they are reunited now she's been a long time without him and they're together so that's the only positive thing i can get out of this so you know, what's we, the most what's the most important message you want to share with the world i'd like the government to be a bit more stricter with the way they're handling this and if they say lockdown it means lockdown no mamby pamby in no oh you know we trust people and you can't trust the, the, the people here we can't i'm not talking about everybody but in general we can't trust the general public they're, they're, they're not sensible and um, oh, we don't want to come across as, as authoritarian we want it to, you know you know we don't want to be dictatorial but you have to be with people sometimes because that's the only way we're going to get rid of it you have to lock down and people need to know this is real it's not gone away it's not going away chris witty has said it's going to be with us for a while yet i don't see any vaccine coming soon if there was i'd be a little bit reluctant myself to take it because i'm not an anti-vaxxer but i think something that is brought in very quickly i would be a bit wary of treatments brilliant if they can bring treatments in for it amazing but you know we're still stuck in lockdown here because of people that are going out and don't give two stuffs and they're out there spreading it because a lot of people have it and don't realize they're asymptomatic they don't know they've got it and you know i understand to a point why they like it and why they're doing it but come on guys get real this is going to be with us and actually you might be feeling safe now but come the autumn and the winter when the weather gets colder and it does better you can have far more cases and without a doubt we are going to have second and third and fourth waves i expect maybe smaller but they're already saying you know one of the sage guys was saying that he feels it might be bigger you know people have got to take notice and they have got to get back to normal life but stay within that social distance you've got to because if you don't you might not get it but you're going to pass it to somebody that in your family and they're going to die simple as it hits a lot of people a lot of people without underlying conditions Okay, thank you, um, Carol. Thank you for sharing that. What's happened to you is very moving.